Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ideas that shape us and the humans behind the positions in our public conversations. Each episode I speak to someone involved in public debates and ask them about what they hold sacred and what they've learned about engaging across our differences. In this episode you'll hear a conversation I had with David Baddiel. David is a screenwriter, author and television presenter. He's written novels for children and adults, the play My Family, Not the Sitcom, and the film The Infidel, among many other things. His most recent play, God's Dice, is about science, religion and quantum theory, and he's about to tour with a new comedy show, Trolls. We spoke about his sacred value of truth, growing up only knowing Jewish people, why he's an atheist who quite likes religion, and how he uses his public voice. I hope you enjoy listening. David, I always kick off, or usually kick off, with asking people what they hold sacred, which I think you've had some warning about. Uh, you might have, I might have done, but to be honest with you, uh, I would have forgotten it. That's okay. Uh, and so, you're, which is good, because my response will be entirely spontaneous, which I always Great. prefer. Great. So before I get that, to give you a beat, uh, how, do, how does that word, how do you feel about that word? Is that a concept that's kind of live for you? Does it feel like something that's not relevant to your life? The word sacred? Yeah. Um, I don't know that I would use that word to describe what I instantly felt is the sacred thing in my life when I realised that's what you're going to yeah. ask me. Uh, because I do talk about something, I, I have separately talked about something which I don't describe sacred, what I describe it as is the only kind of mantra, morality, motto, they're all N-words, in my life. Yeah. Like, what do I live my life by? Right? And there's only one thing I live my, my life by, um, and that is the phrase, the truth is always complex. Um, that's the only motto I have in life. Mm. And uh, the reason I bring that up in response to your concept of the sacred is there is one thing that is sacred in my life, I think, and that is honesty. Um, I am incredibly, I think, on the spectrum, um, which is, a, you know, some people may get offended by my use of that phrase because I wouldn't class myself as autistic or whatever in any way, although sometimes my wife says I am. But I um, think that I have a very, very deep discomfort with being dishonest in any way. Um, and honesty is a very complex thing. It's not just about like not telling lies. Mm. It's about having an idea of who you actually are. Yeah. And I see more and more a projection of who we are uh, happening in the world and an ability and, and the technological technological ability to project a different version of yourself to who you actually are. And yeah. fame involves a different version of who you are being projected yeah. all, all the time. And so for me, uh, the, the thing I hold sacred is whatever I believe to be the truth or my truth. Um, and obviously that touches quite deeply on religion uh, because uh, I, I have a... Well, I don't know if you want to get onto this so early, but but uh, as an atheist, my uh, I have an unusual attitude to religion, which is partly what I think led to that play, and partly what has led to all the things that I've said about religion, which is that I quite like religion. I like religion, and I'm I'm the only I think notable atheist, if I'm notable at all, who uh, is from an ethnic minority. And I think one of the things about being from an ethnic minority and being brought up in the way that I have is that you understand completely the power and yearning for uh, in the in humanity, in religion. You can't understand humanity if you dismiss religion, which is what a lot of atheists tend to do. And I quite like religion in many ways, and I believe there's a speech in the play <laughs> where uh, uh, Virginia, who is essentially my voice, she's the atheist in my play that we're going to talk about, talks about the extraordinary things in religion. 
um, and how important it is. And so what I think is, it's an interesting, sorry, I've, I've, I've meandered now, but no, what I mean great. is, what I mean is that um, my basic position on religion is, it's an extraordinary thing without which you cannot understand what it means to be human. The key element of it is, is it's not true. Yeah. <laughs> it, it involves something which is not true. And so that's always been a complicated thing for me. So there's loads of threads that I want to yeah. pick up there, but I'm going to try and stay just around this sacred value. And I'm glad you said that because I've listened to several podcasts with you and my guess was that you would say truth. You're the first interviewee that I feel like I've come to knowing what you hold sacred in a way because that- Because I do too many podcasts. No, because you're self-reflective about it. Yeah. And what, you know, one of the things this podcast is trying to do is, is make people- surface and articulate the values that drive them because it feels like otherwise you can't understand what motivates people and why these things often clash so deeply. Mm. Um, so let's stick with truth for a minute because it, again, it's a real theme in the play. Um, and there's, it's interesting that you think you're Virginia, who's this kind of female Richard Dawkins, although more attractive character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I was a, in a classic sort of assumption way, reading you more as the kind of physics lecturer. As Henry. As Henry. Yeah. Um, but there is a lot about what quantum uh, physics, quantum mechanics, quantum the quantum world does t to understandings of truth. Mm. And so uh, tell me what writing the play did to your understanding of what truth is. Where does it come from? What do you mean by it, given mm. what we know about ourselves as human mm. beings, kind of partial, biased, motivated in our reasoning? Well, and also, as you say, to do with the quantum world. I mean, that, so I should explain for anyone uh, listening, which will be most people who haven't seen the play, because uh, it only ran for six weeks at Soho Theatre, although hopefully will be transferring at some point, is it's a play in which a physics lecturer, um, who's a kind of, you know, second division physics lecturer, uh, he's not a big, you know, celebrity academic or anything, um, is approached uh, at one of his lectures very early on in the play by a Christian, a young woman, who appears to have... Um, a sense of the quantum universe that as mysterious in a divine way. Um, and that leads to her suggesting that there might be equations, quantum equations, that prove the actuality of major biblical miracles and by implication the existence of God. And the sort of twist is that he is married, uh, Henry, the physicist, is married to a very famous celebrity atheist, uh, and their marriage breaks down as a result of this. And you know, if you want to know more about what happens, you should go and see the play, should it be on buy somewhere. Buy a copy of the script. Or buy a copy read. of the script. Um, and I think you make a good point, which I think is, I am fascinated by quantum physics. Um, and it's something, it's all sorts of reasons for it. It's partly a personal thing because my dad was a scientist. I rejected science early on. He called that a waste of a brain um, and in the kind of terrible parenting that I had. And I think there's been a return of the repressed in my 50s where I've just read endlessly about science. Or uh, And I think, I think there's another element to it. Uh, which is, I think, that as I grow older and nearer death, I think, okay, so obviously I'm not religious, so how do I have a sense of what the universe is? And there's one place to go for that if you are looking for answers to big questions, and it's science and sort of specifically physics, and particularly quantum physics, because it suggests at least here is the absolute matter, here is the real matter of the universe. And you've pointed to something else, which I, I think is very correct about the play, which is it also then... If you really start to, I, I'm going to use the word understand, obviously I don't, no one does, but sort of dig into quantum physics. What it also does is it completely screws with your idea of what is true and what isn't. That It suggests that a heart 
uncertainty rules the universe and there's no way of telling any kind of truth least of all physical truth least of all the evidence of our senses that's the last thing that's true um so all those things fascinate me um uh, they also disturb me because obviously i'm interested in the truth partly because i feel that i have some kind of connection to it some window into it some window into it some some tuning fork inside me that that vibrates when i'm close to it and yet of course i don't because uh it's almost impossible to divine any kind of objective truth and science actually reinforces that mm. so does it make you want to give up on that as a sacred value how do you what does no, that do I don't to you internally so. i don't think so um i think that locally, as it were, I am still able to certainly hang on to what I perceive to be, I'm going to say objective truths. Obviously, everyone has a sense of the truth is always subjective. But my sense that is like, okay, there are certain objective truths that I think I can sort of clasp. I think like, okay, this is clearly going on. This is clearly going on. Um, I can sometimes see it just in people. I'm quite good with that, I think. Mm. Um, I think that I... Um, I'm able to think, okay, this I think is what is going on here with my relationship with this person or on mass with these people as an audience or whatever. And also with me. I mean, that's sort of probably what it comes down to in the end. Like one of the things I say about myself is I'm a very limited performer. Yeah. And the reason I'm a limited performer is I'm only really good at one thing, which is being myself. Uh, and I notice this actively in the sense that like most comedians, most performers can do a range of accents. I can't do any. I literally can't do any. And when I try, I feel really, really discomforted, not just because I'm shit, but also because I think I don't want to move one iota away from myself. Mm. Uh, and that's quite unusual um, because T.S. Eliot said, you know, we all create a face to meet the faces that we meet. And I don't. I really don't. I don't really have an ability to do that. Mm. Um, and I that's what gives me a sense that I am at least within my own local field of energy to be yeah. a bit quantum about it being true. Do you think that, so Henry goes on this kind of trajectory from the beginning. There's a, there's a lovely thing about the R sound when yeah. this Christian student says, uh, says to the physicist, says, so I'm, so a, I'm Christian. a Christian and he goes, ah, yeah. she is v v kind of biting and wonderful on everything behind that R. Mm. And then right at the end, someone else says R to Henry and he says, I don't make that sound anymore. Mm. Is that true for you? Do you think? Well, one thing about I should say about the play, I don't mind me, but one thing I think about the play is it was, by some at least, Christians really liked. Um, it got a weird range of reviews, some really bad reviews and some really good reviews. And one really good review it got, rather, perhaps unexpectedly, was from Quentin Letts, who is the uh, Sunday Times theatre critic, uh, and it gave, he gave it four stars. In what I would consider to be, well, I was going to say a radical misreading of the play, but at some level it wasn't. Um, I mean, to be clear, his reading of the play was that the whole play is based around that R, that essentially it's a plea for belief um, against the sort of cynical, metropolitan, sneering R um, of the world. Um, and he quoted at some point um, E.D. talking later on in the play about how Virginia says, I know that God doesn't exist, like I know that stone is hard. Mm. And later on, uh, E.D. says... You know, that's not, uh, an atheist said that to me, but stone is not hard. Stone is dense with movement. It's full of energy. It's only hard relative to the sensations the brain processes to the hand. And I think a Christian like Quentin Letts is responding to that mm. because of the unusualness 
of seeing a Christian character that clever, mm. um, which she is. She's mm. a genius and and powerful and and, 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 and able and to win arguments and charismatic and all the rest of it. What he misses out, or at least actually in the review calls a misstep, is that when she says that second bit, she is leading a death cult. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> At that point. Yeah, I was going to um, say, I do you think that's a strange yeah, reading given yeah, the ending. Yes. Well, he just thinks that's a misstep. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, but what, what I would say is, as a writer, I was incredibly interested in making that character uh, powerful mm. and intelligent and cleverer actually than anyone else even though my voice in the play is Virginia's. Mm. It is Virginia's. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't interested in... See, one of the things is, without too many spoilers, is I think the other thing Quentin Lett saw is that Virginia sort of loses in the play. She loses, right? And he thinks again, I think he sees that. So it's a play about mm. the victory of the belief. It's not. Yeah. It's, a, it's a, essentially what I would say the play is about. And again, this comes down to something... You know, I said earlier about religion not being true, is that I think the play is about truth and it's about how, in the end, people will always prefer uh, their truth to the truth. So people will always, you know, in the, in the, Henry quotes the opening of the belief system, which is Virginia's book that I guess is a bit like The God Delusion. And what he quotes is the opening line, which is um, a friend once said to me, but don't you want to believe in God? I said, yes, desperately. That's why I know he doesn't exist. And um, so the play is about, I think, what it suggests, therefore, is that God is a projection of desire, yeah. that we want God to exist, and therefore we have made him real. And the play is about how people will always project their desire, mm. uh, which in Henry's case is for significance and destiny and a sense that his life is, has more meaning than it actually does. Mm. They will always make that their truth rather than hold on to the cold, actual, dead truth that we are meaningless. Yeah. Um, and that's really what it's about. So I had an interesting conversation with Tom Chivers, who is a science writer and uh, atheist who's been on the podcast. And uh, he's written quite a lot about one of the mistakes we make with that movement is that you can't you can't so psychoanalyze yourself, your way to the truth. And that's one of the things I really valued that you make that, you play with that idea that it's not, well, again, this is fascinating, isn't it? About the way we read things differently. And I'm a Christian, so I'm projecting stuff onto it. Of course yeah. I am. But I think every viewer would be that Edie knows that move. And she has this kind of thing about, of course, I'm a Christian because I'm so damaged. Mm. Um, but the possibility that we see is that it, that, there could be a psychological projection in the other in the other direction, and I think that's the the another atheist I had on the podcast called Andrew Copson, who you know I, 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 I know imagine Andrew Copson. Um, he's yeah, a humanist. Yeah, he's a humanist, yeah. um, and he he said we had a lovely conversation, and he was really honest. And he said, "To be honest, I just sort of wonder what's happened to you that's ended up with you believing." And I had this slew of emails from religious listeners being like, so "Oh, atheists do that too," yeah, because. Religious people can be incredibly patronising and be like, well, it was just because they had a terrible experience in church or they had an appalling father figure. That's why they've ended up an atheist. Oh, I see. That's interesting. No, see, I would voice it was the other way around. That does happen yeah. in the play. You know, the the sleaziest character in the play, um, who is essentially trying to get uh, go to bed with Edie, is sort of trying to do that via psychoanalyzing her in a bar. Um, and she off offers up a range of explanations that he would expect yeah. for why she's a Christian and that, that upends him because the thing is that Edie, who another thing that's going on by the way is a sort of more theatrical thing, which is I want people to think, oh, this is just some sort of 
slightly screwed up Christian ingenue young character she's obviously going to be the most weak character in the play no she's not she's the most powerful character in the play and she absolutely knows exactly where things are going to come from and what arguments all these apparently cleverer people are going to throw at her and she wins virtually every scene that she's in but in a very kind of growing mm. way and you sort of it's almost like you don't notice yeah. until, until it's too late yeah. oh my god who is this person and also one other m- much more complex thing uh, which is that in a way she's not a character at all she's for me what she is is a one of the actors said to me my mum said is she an alien and I said that's almost the best reading I've got of her because she is at some level someone who's so obsessed with quantum physics that she's created of herself mm. uh, this idea that I am a sort of particle that moves and you never know what I'm going to do you never know what I'm going to say and she's that's what she's doing. She's, yeah. she, you know, someone says at one point, I believe, I think that she believes in quantum physics like she believes in God. Yeah. So anyway, having said all that, uh, in terms of what you, you said, I I came at it from that conversation from I think an atheist believer, not necessarily an atheist, as someone who isn't a believer. Uh, uh, that if someone is a believer, that that must be rooted in childhood and it could be damage or it could just be because their parents were very believing or whatever it is mm. so yes I, I I think that you have a tendency as a non-believer to sort of glibly psychoanalyze someone who is a believer but I hadn't thought that perhaps that works the other way around all the time. and right. it was fascinating I think from within my tribe it was realizing that we both do it made me go oh well this is useless <laughs> like right. this is not going to get us any closer to anything is it we're just assuming we're just assuming things about each other there's one of the reasons I you know, I think listening is so important to really understand. So, but I'm, I really should move off the play because there's so much to talk to you yeah, about. One thing, other thing I would say about yeah. the play is that Frank Skinner, who hasn't actually seen it, um, but Frank Skinner is a Catholic and very devout Catholic, actually, even though he's got his own version of Catholicism, but he's a very devout Catholic. And he was the first person, I mean, he was very important for the play mm. in that I have talked about this a bit before, but I think it's interesting for you, um, is that, um, so when I was first getting friendly with Frank, um, we were on a long drive somewhere and he started telling me about how he can't take communion. And that was because at the time he was separated from his wife uh, or I think divorced from his wife and with his girlfriend. And he told me that, so therefore I am committing adultery as far as the Catholic Church are concerned. He eventually got his first marriage annulled by the Vatican. But I'm committing adultery. This was later on. Um, And so because of that, I can't tell the priest uh, because I'm with my girlfriend that I'm going to stop doing that so he won't give me absolution mm. without absolution I can't go and have the wafer and therefore I can't take me and it's on and on like this and and, I, and then I said to him sorry stop a minute <laughs> sorry what sorry, sorry stop a minute are you at, you're actually bothered about all this stuff all right, and he said no you don't understand I think I will burn in hellfire because of this and I'd never really heard anyone say anything like that not in 1603 and particularly not a very intelligent person. I had by then, it was clear to me, this is a brilliant comedian, but also a really bright bloke. And you liked him, right? Which makes a big difference. we were very close already. We were starting to get very close. So then there was this thing happening, which I have, has happened to me since on a number of occasions, including in this room now, uh, which is I thought, oh, right, religious people are not all stupid, right? Because to to be honest, no, to be honest with you, well, I'd I'd come from an Orthodox, not an Orthodox Jewish background, but I'd gone to an Orthodox Jewish school because that was just the nearest school that my parents where we grew up that I wouldn't get knifed and also we were from a Jewish background and so they sent me there but it was a very orthodox school and it, it was when I came away from that school I did think 
I'm like, this is not an intelligent way of being because we were literally just programmed to you know, believe things ritualistically at that school. Uh, and so I think I came out of that thinking it's not a thinking way of being. Mm. And then and then suddenly, oh, no, there are people who think very deeply who believe this stuff. Yeah. And so that, to some extent, much later on led to Edie yeah. because Edie is obviously deeply thinking. I wanted to ask, um, so one of the things I really valued about the play is how honest it is about the suspicion Whenever we talk about religion in public life or really any big idea, there is an always assumption that someone has an agenda and that that thing you've talked about, about just being honest and just being yourself is really difficult. And there is a lot of bad faith. And Andrew Copson and I also played around with this, how hard it is for we too, as people who are leading organisations that are perceived to be at odds with each other, mm. to actually just connect on a human level but to actually, like drop our guards enough. Sorry, I don't mean to no. interrupt, but I realised I hadn't finished what I was saying about Frank, which is that Frank said to me, I said, I said, I'm not sure you'll like the play because at some level it's very atheist. This was before I, it was on and I realised that Christians seem to really like it. Yeah. Um, and he said, no, 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 I, I'll be interested because to be honest with you, if someone is actively atheist, most of the time I think, well, at least you're taking an interest, at least yeah. you've thought about it. Most people don't even think about it. Yeah. And I thought, oh, right, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, so I think that's... Yeah. I don't know if you were going on to say that, but in terms of the at-odds thing, yeah. I don't know if atheists thinking atheists and Christians or any other believers are necessarily at odds because at least they're having the conversation. Exactly. I've got in my Twitter bio soft spot for atheists because if someone's thought enough to work out what they are, I'm like, well, you're interested in the question. Yeah. Like, excellent. We can connect on it's this. It's impossible for someone like me not to be, though, yeah. because I come from, you know, uh, my grandparents on my mother's side were Holocaust survivors. My mother was born in Nazi Germany. I grew up in a very although mixed up in all sorts of ways, but Jewish background, I, you know, Jew is my Twitter profile. Yeah. Um, I think the complicate, I mean, one of the things that I get a lot on Twitter is people saying, how can you be a Jew and, and an atheist? Mm. And I say, well, I believe in God. I don't believe in God, but I do believe in pickled herring uh, or Larry David or whatever it might be. <laughs> and I very, very strongly identify culturally and ethnically with being Jewish without believing in God, which actually, Virtually no Jew has a problem with. Yeah. If you're Jewish, everyone instantly understands that. It tends to be people who are non-Jewish who don't yeah. understand it. But it's impossible for me not to think about it. So let's wind back because I want to ask about the formative ideas in your childhood. And having seen my family, not the sitcom, I have some, you know, some sense, but lots of people won't have done. So uh, paint me a picture. What were the formative ideas? If you have a sense of why truth ended up being so important to you, throw that in there. Um, and I'm particularly interested in, did you at some point believe in God? And do you remember when you stopped? Um, <laughs> well, I think that um, truth, if, if you ask me why I think truth was so important to me, my family lot sitcom is quite important because I, uh, it's a, mainly about, even though people think it was mainly about my dad and his dementia, that was actually a secondary part of it. The first part of it is about my mum's sex life and about the fact that she had an affair with a golfing memorabilia salesman and then turned our lives over to golf. Uh, so uh, all through my childhood, there was this weird lie and weird in absolutely hiding in plain sight lie because she completely put golf everywhere in the house and became hugely obsessed with golf memorabilia. Uh, and that I think that's the key thing, uh, why I'm obsessed with truth, because we had a, a household that was not just involved in a lie, but not in the way that uh, actually, you know, you often read memoirs about people where there were affairs in the background or whatever. It was like a completely flagrant lie. Um, and I think that made me want, and my mum in general uh, was someone who I think had a sort of like version of her life that she wanted to live. And actually, you know, because my mum came from this uh, very, very dangerous background where she nearly didn't 
exist at all. I think she tried to seize life, but because she was then ending up in Dollis Hill in 1970s, lower middle class mundane life, she couldn't really find a way of doing it except in this weird, not very exotic way with a golfing memorabilia salesman. And I think um, my mum projected who she wanted to be. And I reacted against that. Mm. I think like I'm going to sort of always try and be the hard, often quite depressing truth of who I am. I'd rather be that than live this kind of circus life. Um, But also I did have my dad who was a scientist and he was very obsessed with science and he used to make us like learn the periodic table from flashcards of like, okay, here's lead, here's gold, here's whatever. You have to know the amount of electrons and blah, blah, blah. Sounds like barrels of laughs. Yeah, well, actually my dad was a laugh, but he was also very obsessed with that and made us want to do that. And also he was very, very male. He's like an absurdly male bloke. And I think there was a sort of weird yin and yang with his kind of hard male science-ness and my mum's Mills and Boone acting out life, you know. Um, And in terms of did I ever believe in God, that's a really good question because one of the things I think about Jews is it's hard to know whether any of them believe in God. I say in my musical version of The Infidel, the rabbi at one point, in the, at the final point, they're all singing versions of who they are. And the rabbi says, I'm an atheist like most Jews. And I can prove that to be the case because I was asked to light a menorah, a public menorah near where I live. Recently, a, a guy, a rabbi found my phone number. And I thought, well, how does he even have my number? Um, but he did and said, would you like this menorah? And I, I played my trump card because I didn't want to do it. And I said, uh, I'm sorry, rabbi, I'm an atheist. And he said, so am I. And I thought, that, well, it's really common then, isn't it, amongst Jews? Um, um, and so I don't know because I I personally think that Judaism as a religion is much more about the here and now. It's much more about – it's a series of weird, slightly OCD, 613 mitzvot that you're meant to do. These all these things you're meant to do, turn the light off at the right time, tie ribbons around your hand at another time. It feels to me like a very OCD way of trying to make the world safe now. It doesn't actually have a concept of the afterlife, and obviously it does in the Old Testament have this very, very enraged – uh, anthropomorphic rejection of God, but I don't know that most Jews have a sense of mm. God like Christians have of the mm. living Jesus that you know and all that stuff. So I don't remember that. What I do remember is when I understood what death was, being very, very absurdly—I mean, I say absurdly correctly—anxious <laughs> about it from a very early age, mm. like at the age of about nine and ten, becoming aware of death and just being terrified that that was going to happen and going to happen to my parents, going to happen to my brothers and whatever. Um, but it didn't make me turn to God, I don't think. I don't know if this is answer your question either. The other thing I would say is, until I was 11, I basically hadn't really met a non-Jew, right? Because uh, all my parents' friends were Jews. I went to a Jewish school. I went to a Jewish youth group called Habonim, and all my friends were from that. And uh, and I do think one of the things that that was good for is that British Jews are quite, until very recently, quite kind of like, oh, well, let's not talk about our Jewishness. Hmm. They're quite kind of under a bushel. Uh, I remember a few years ago someone saying to me, the headline in the Jewish Chronicle every week is basically they hate us. I said, no, it's they hate us and let's not make a fuss about it. That's changed recently because of anti-Semitism and all the rest of it. Uh, But I was never like that. I was always really out about it. And I think maybe it's because of that. It's because I... I was like 13 before I really understood how most people aren't Jewish. Yeah. And so I'm, I was always very comfortable with proclaiming my Jewishness. Yeah. And do those two identities ever feel like their intention? And I'm thinking of things like um, when you've got secularist campaigning campaigners um, about circumcision, for example, do you ever feel a sense of, gosh, I need to pick a side here? 
I hardly ever give that any thought at all. Occasionally, someone on Twitter goes on to me about circumcision. I'm, uh, I mean, I find it hard to believe, personally, that the issue of male circumcision is one that anyone really gets fired up about, considering how important uh, female genital mutilation is as an issue and how much it needs to be stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, I do get people talking about it. I mean, all I can say is, it has not in any way impacted on my life in a mm. bad way, not having a foreskin. Yeah. So therefore, I can't, you know, I don't really worry about it. I mean, as it happens, my son wasn't going to be circumcised. Mm. Um, he, he, We decided, um, we thought about it, and it wasn't anything to do with God, but it was to do with identity. Yeah. Uh, so when my son was born, I've got a daughter and a son, uh, we thought, oh, actually, maybe he should be circumcised because maybe he'll want to own his Jewishness later on and it'll be much harder for him to get circumcised when he's 17 or whatever that might happen to him. So maybe we should, but then in the end we decided, oh, no, it just feels like a weird thing to do because we're not religious and blah, blah, blah. And then, and obviously one can read this as a divine intervention, when he was about four, he started having problems urinating right. and we had to have his foreskin removed right. anyway. Funny. And so he is circumcised. Um Virginia in the play says... I thought you were going to leave the play behind. I'm go- it's, it's just a way of getting to this question, okay. really. Uh, says, um, I desperately want to believe in God and that's why I don't know he exists. Is that you? Do you would you really like to? Uh, well, that, that is something I, I have said before. It was actually during the infidel, Omid Jalili, who is a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't know this, but for anyone who doesn't know, um, Baha'is sort of believe in all religions. They believe that all religions are chapters in the one book. Uh, and it's a lovely religion as far as I can make out. Um, but he, you know, in my film, The Infidel, is about a Muslim who discovers he was born a Jew and it sort of rocks his world. Um, he said he said to me, don't you want to believe in God? And I said, yes, of course. Uh, and in a way, that's... I remember saying to A.A. A. Gill um, once, who was a believer... Um, that this was my, in a way, my main, I mean, there's lots of other reasons, but my main uh, reason for being an atheist is that it seems to me so obviously a projection of desire. God, like who would not want there to be uh, a life after death, significance, meaning, um, uh, someone up there who listens to our prayers, uh, some way of dealing with all the horrors and terrors of life that isn't just shouting in the dark, who would not want all those things, and also possibly even more deeply, a father figure uh, up there that's somehow looking out for us. Who, you know, And anything we want, particularly I would say proved now, uh, we will sort of create, we will sort of make it happen and say it's real. Um, and he... I remember him saying, oh, that's really Jewish of me. Um, and I can't remember his reasoning why now. But I think I think he was suggesting that I was sort of party pooping in some way, that, that somehow or other that saying that just because we want it means it doesn't exist was a sort of weird sort of, I don't know, uh, wet blanketness. But actually, I don't think it is. I think it's very important. I think if you... I mean, you know, I don't want. To, I actually don't want to get into because I've, I have done this before. I, 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 not this specifically, but I was once on a start the week where me and Philip Pullman were like the atheists, and um, the last Archbishop of Canterbury, what's his name? Rowan Williams. Yeah, Rowan Williams, and I can't remember who it was. A Muslim academic uh, were pitched against each. Well, we were supposed to just be talking like yeah, I was this. Say, it's not very start the weeky. Well, 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 we were supposed to be talk. We were supposed to be just talking about religion. And it ended up with right. a slightly sixth form thing about you know this is why God this doesn't. House believes. Yes, exactly. This is why God does exist. Why do I don't, and, and I don't like that kind of thing much. Uh, I don't think it gets you anywhere. Um, but I, um, I, I, I guess that is what I think. I think that if you take that 
idea that we desperately want him to exist, mm. plus the lack of evidence that he does. You know, there's quite a strong case that maybe we've made this up. Hmm. We'll talk more about that another time. Right. Because, uh, yeah. Um, I'm, this, is, this is not the place no. for counter-arguments. Um, I'd love to talk about your public voice, which you've had for a really long, long time. time. Yeah. That wasn't supposed to be rude. Oh. You know, you know, eminent, Sorry. eminent voice in the public square. Yeah, it's kind of a weird voice, isn't it? I was saying this just now. I was on Good Morning Britain. I don't want to slang off Good Morning Britain. Well, maybe I will a little bit. And they, they had a thing I was, uh, whereby they'd brought on some terrible American bloke who wears a hat called Make Women Great Again or something. And he's kind of anti-feminist bloke who runs conferences, runs kind of meninist conferences in America, and then there were some women there talking about how they disagreed, and Piers Morgan or whatever, and it, I just thought, okay, this is a made-up thing, you know, that you're, you're just putting inflating. on, inflating in order to aggravate and create argument or whatever, and I'm watching it thinking, do I really belong in this space? <laughs> you know, and I have felt that, in terms of my thing about truth. Yeah. One reason why the shows I do now, and things like God's Dice, yeah. are happening is although I am really proud, actually, of most of the things I've done, I'm like, no, don't hide, hide my light under a bushel. I do think, okay, what is my actual voice? This is getting back to truth again mm. and the truth of, of the self. And the actual truth of myself is I'm a comedian. I am a comedian and I can be funny and I like being funny, but I am an intellectual. It's probably who I am. And in Britain, that's a weird thing to be because we don't really have public intellectuals. Yeah, that sounds far them. too grandiose. I know, we don't that's have them. That's what the French like, have. Exactly, that's what the French have and that's maybe what the Americans have at some level. Uh, and I found my way into being that through comedy, and I'm really happy with that. And I do, and I would also completely defend the fact that comedy is a brilliant space to sort of like talk about ideas and all the rest of it. But as I've got older, I think now I've got to let it. I've got to let my my intellectual flag fly because yeah. it is who I am. And do so. I've been reading. You wrote a piece in the Times uh, recently about trolls and about that public voice, and it, you're clearly kind of self reflecting on how you do it and kind of what is the best use of it but there was a I'm going to challenge you very gently because I've been, too, I've been like. too nice so far challenge me in any way you like um, but you you talk about the importance of empathy uh, and uh, yeah remembering that there's someone on the other screen there's a human being and then you segue directly that to saying and that's why I keep making fun of my trolls mm. and it it feels like a call for trolls to be empathetic but in your response to them and I understand basically you're a comedian, so if it's funny, that's a good enough reason. Okay, I know what you're going to say. So in yeah. the same so is article... Is it not unempathetic to be calling out the stupidity of your trolls? Well, in the same article, yeah. I say, um, at times I think, am I just trolling the trolls? Yeah. Making myself a troll? Is my response disproportionate? Because you're pretty spiky yeah, with well, a no, lot I of can people. Be, I can be pretty spiky. I mean, no, unquestionably, I also say this is a new language we're all learning, and it's yeah. confused. Yeah. Uh, and I in no way consider that my own approach has the kind of moral sort of stamp of authority or whatever. So I'm saying I'm trying to find my way through this and I am a comedian and mm. one thing I do is when I'm heckled is respond to the hecklers and try and make it funny. I mean, most of the time I would say uh, that response is because it's comedic. Mm. Um, I I would say it's, you know, it's very rare that I, because one of my rules is don't get angry. So it's very rare because it wouldn't be funny, but also it would, you know, it would be just like trolling the troll to say, oh, you're a terrible person and what about this thing? I don't do that. I try and say something which is, I would say, disarming. Mm. Now, 
sometimes that can lead to it being quite spiky and whatever. But I think that that is my job as a comedian is to try and make it funny, and that will involve mocking the person to some extent. Um, and, you know, comedy does it has involved that. I, it, generally, as I've got older in comedy, I try and avoid doing stuff that I think uh, will involve an individual being hurt by what I've said, unless it's a very powerful individual, mm. unless it's basically Donald Trump or Boris Johnson. Or I think that's okay. Mm. Um, but I try and avoid that. I mean, like there are comedians, for example, who slang off a lot of other comedians, and I never do that, yeah. for example, because I kind of think like these are just people I know, yeah. and why would you want to do that? Yeah. Um, but I, you know, undeniably, I, I don't always get it right. In fact, there's an interesting one that I talk about in the show, mm. which is I, Richard Dawkins, yeah. uh, said on Twitter recently that his mum had died. And I, tweet, I repeated the tweet, and then I said, um, I'm sorry to hear that, Richard. She is, of course, not in a better place, right? No, uh, see, I think that's a really funny joke, and I think that it, it's great atheist solidarity, but it did get people saying, that's awful, that's mean-spirited, and whatever. In fact, one person said, that's mean-spirited, and I said, only if you believe in spirits. So I, I doubled down on, on the joke. But I do, in the show, say, is that okay? I'm not sure, you know? And I think, well, after I've got the laugh on it, of course. Mm. Um, so uh, I... All I can say in answer to what you said is, yes, I think that um, empathy is the answer. I'm not saying that I've always a saint of empathy. I had another comedian on called, comedian on called James Carey, who's generally a, a sitcom writer. And we had a fascinating conversation about this because I feel like the public square is so febrile. And again, you you know, you talked about everyone is scared. Everyone is angry and everyone is scared. And just acknowledging that I think is very, very helpful. But in this kind of everyone's in fight or flight, we're so easily af af offended and sometimes for good reasons, but we're not kind of saving it for the good reasons. <laughs> we're, we're, we're using that energy all the time in a way that really affects our ability to make, you know, kind of deliberative democratic decisions and our ability to, um, to put ourselves in other people's shoes. But he had a particular thing about the role of comedy and that there is something almost about the calling, the vocation of comedy always is going to have to be to push the boundaries mm. of what is acceptable, is going to have to be to call out the shibboleths and the sacred cows. And there's something about, there's almost a moral value, almost a kind of prophetic value in it, which wasn't an argument that I'd, uh, I'd thought about or heard before, particularly given how high profile comedians are now in terms of public voices. Do you feel that? Do you feel like there's some, there's, even when it creates bad reactions, there's almost something important in it? Well, I think that one of the things about social media and the world that we live in now is that it's there is this terror, which I talk about, of saying the wrong thing. The trouble is that comedy often involves saying the wrong thing in order to make laughter. Yeah. You know, and one thing I, I talk about in the show is jokes that I've done, which people don't even realise are jokes. And because my, my ideas of trolls are not just people who are slagging me off uh, by calling me a wanker. It's also people who are high-mindedly telling me off. And it's also people who simply don't seem to have any kind of radar for comedy. Uh, because all of these people shut down joy and laughter mm. in different ways. Um, and uh, I think the literal mindedness of the place that we're in now is a problem. Because and it tends to rip things saying, out of context, right? Because a joke can yeah. make complete sense in a set that yes. if you just lift the line, yeah. doesn't. And also you get the death of metaphor. And this happens quite a lot, which is not necessarily straightforwardly to do with comedy, but I think that, I can't remember what it was now, but... Um, you know, if you talk now about someone being stabbed in the back, uh, someone will say, oh, you're encouraging knife crime. You think, like, no, it's it's a metaphor, and it's a very, very old metaphor. Uh, but people will do that more and more um, because they want to create 
rage and anger and they want as well their team to have whatever point it has from saying this other person is encouraging knife crime yeah. uh, when they're not. They've used a metaphor and the death of metaphor is a, is a worry and obviously in comedy you're using metaphors all the time and you are all the time possibly deliberately saying the wrong thing. I mean character comedy I was watching this thing called Alan Parker Urban Warrior that Simon Munry do you know Simon Munry did years ago, and he and it's a kind of good example of you know, it's a sort of version of that Titania McGrath thing um, of like a sort of very, very angry in the 90s, it would have been studenty, left wing, politically correct character. Um, and whatever your politics are, the issue is like that's a character. Like Al Murray's pub landlord is a character. Um, and that ability seems to me to be being threatened because, you know, if Al Murray, or if, to use a bigger example, Borat, right? Borat is an anti-Semite, misogynist, racist, blah, blah, blah. In so that Sasha Baron Cohen can make fun of anti-Semitism, racism, misogyny, blah, blah, blah. Um, and if you can't do that anymore because anything you say gets decontextualized, then that is the end of character comedy. Um, one thing I would say is if people wanted, you know, people no doubt could say, oh, no, no, but what it's also doing is making fun of people from Eastern Europe as if they don't have understanding of, you know, more complicated ideas. And that would be a legitimate criticism of Borat. But no one really makes that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to finish with a question that I ask uh, guests about what have you learned? Because I think one of the pe the reasons that people listen is to hear voices that, to understand what's behind some of these public voices, what's driving people, what they hold sacred. And also because everyone's a bit worried about the state that we've got into in our public, in our common life, really, and how we engage with each other. So what have you learned? What helps? Um, you've talked about your friendship with Frank, you know, just friendships with people who are different from yourself. But is there anything else, kind of practices, tips, environments you put yourselves in that helps you be someone who can uh, be a bridge person, not a wall-building person. <laughs> Sounds terribly pious, doesn't it? Well, actually, in the show, the show isn't completely negative about social media at all. It sort of describes my love-hate relationship with social media. And one of the things I say in it is that sometimes when I'm either dealing with trolls and have created some comedy thing out of that or just said something on Twitter that's a bit of observational comedy, what you notice is that people run with it. Uh, and so what I say on uh, about dealing with trolls is I say you know, the basic process of dealing with a heckler of any sort is to say yes to them, is to embrace what they've said and then in an improvisational way, you know, say yes, which is interesting because they're massive say-knowers. That's what they are. They're trying to shut everything down, and you, but you can still subvert them by saying yes to them. Yes, and. and then in, in a lot, yes, and, yeah. And then in a larger context, I think the saying yes to life, as it were, that you can get on social media. So, you know, I sometimes that's in sometimes that's just fun. It's just like, for example, you know, I'll put a picture of my cats on social media. I've got I'm very obsessed with cats. Uh, and I put a picture of two of my cats on social media and say, you know, this is a, the new electro pop duo because they look a bit like they're on some album cover and the next day I've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people sending me pictures of their pets in what look like stage album cover pictures and I kind of think that's really beautiful that's the yeah. opposite of saying no it's people saying yes and it's opening doors just... well, and it's opening doors between people yeah I mean well, I'll give you a very more specific example right which is um again it's a little bit of observational comedy so I say I've noticed that scrolling back on date of birth dialogue boxes is starting to take an depressingly long time indeed right and someone wrote to me and said that they had to um, get their dad into ITV player there was no option to scroll back year by year you had to do it month by month he was born in 1929 right and I imagine they're still doing it and what I love about that is 
I've got a vignette into that person's life. I feel I know that person and their dad. And it's done the opposite of what trolling can do, which is to make me feel like, okay, there is empathy here. There is a way of seeing just a little a tiny window into this person's life. And social media can do that when it's not full of hate. It can feel like this is communication, this is communion. And, and that's what I would say can be the way forward. Um, and sometimes it comes out as inviting trolls. So I sort of finished the show talking about some of the incredibly unpleasant anti-Semitism I get, and then I choose one example of where me fighting back against that was then lots of people joined in with the fighting back. But I would say, in terms of what you say, you have to kind of want to give it away, but it wasn't like that person who said the horrible thing was like crushed. It just took it in another direction, in a comic direction that was just made the whole things funny and joyful and nothing to do with the hideous conspiracy theory, Holocaust denial thing that had started it. It just went into somewhere that was sort of funny and joyful and great. And that happens as a result of this thing that does actually allow people to communicate. I think communication and communion is a really good place to end it. Don't okay. be a deal. Thanks so much for talking Thank to you. me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Milo Edwards, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.